Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live or via Zoom, please email me and let me know. We can get you plugged in, get you the link for that, or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this day. The gift of a new opportunity to come together in community and fellowship to dive into your word and allow it to speak to us. So we pray, God, that tonight all distractions, anything taking our focus away from this moment would be removed so that we can each receive whatever message you have in store for us, that the words of sacred scripture would come to life for us. You would speak to us through them, for you are the word made flesh, and your voice dwells in these pages. And so we pray, God, that these verses would challenge us, comfort us, convict us, and allow us to enter more deeply in our understanding and our relationship of you. And we, we ask, Lord, that you would bless this time, bless us each in the ways that we most need it, we pray for all of those on our minds and hearts, all those that we carry with us in prayer, and especially um, all of the mothers here, all of our moms, as we've just celebrated Mother's Day, um, all of those who've mothered us in, in any way. We just ask that you bless them in the ways that they most need and, and in our thanksgiving of them. And we praise you, Jesus, and we thank you. We lay all of this time at your feet, asking that your will be done. We pray this in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good evening. We are in John chapter 13 this evening, starting in verse 31. This is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, the fifth Sunday of Easter, the Easter season. And it's a shorter gospel. We're going to be reading verses 31 through 35. Now, in the lectionary, what you'll hear at Mass, they skip over one little half of a verse for some reason. I don't really know why. Uh, we're going to read that verse. So if you're following along um, on a phone or looking at the daily readings for next Sunday, you're going to miss that verse. But if you're looking in the Bible, we're going we're to read it right through. So we're going to read 31 to 35. So just so you know, there's going to be might a little be a little bit of a difference if you're looking um, online or at the link. So with that being said, we're going to read this uh, a couple times through. First time through, I just invite you to get a picture for what is being said. So I'm going to paint the scene for you. Uh, Jesus is with the disciples at the Last Supper. Okay, he's just entered into Jerusalem. He's at the Last Supper with the disciples. Uh, he's just washed their feet. He's just predicted um, Judas's betrayal. And he's going to now enter into his final discourse of teachings to the uh, disciples, which lasts from this part of chapter 13 all the way to the end of chapter 17. So a very long uh, last final discourse of Jesus, series of teachings from Jesus. And this is how he chooses to start. His parting words, his parting message to the disciples is with this passage. Okay, so that's where we are. We're in the upper room, Jesus with the disciples um, on the last night of his life. So John 13, verses 31 through 35. When Judas had left, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him 
in himself, and he will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and as I told the Jews, where I go, you cannot come. So now I say it to you, I give you a new commandment. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you also should love one another. This is how all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So a shorter, pretty seemingly straightforward gospel, but remember, this is the beginning of Jesus' parting words, his parting message to the disciples in the upper room at the Last Supper in the Gospel of John. And so as we read this a second time, I really want to invite you to listen very carefully and more intentionally, see if a particular word or phrase stands, stands out to you for any particular reason. Uh, it doesn't have to have anything to do with the passage. You might hear a word and it might just spark something, a thought, a memory, uh, an answer to a prayer, whatever it might be, a specific way God might be trying to speak through you. So pay attention, listen for whatever those words or phrases might be as we read through this a second time. Make note of them and begin to ask, how is God speaking to me personally through this passage or through this word? What is he trying to say to me? So, second time through John 13, 31. When Judas had left, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and he will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and as I told the Jews, where I go, you cannot come. So now I say it to you. I give you a new commandment. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you also should love one another. This is how all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. As this is a shorter passage, I'm just going to read it one final time, just to continue reflecting on the things that stand out to you personally. So if you've identified those, just continue to confirm that, reflect on why. Um, otherwise, continue to listen and see how the Lord is speaking to you individually. When Judas had left... Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and he will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and as I told the Jews, where I go you cannot come, so now I say it to you. I give you a new commandment, love one another. As I have loved you, so you also should love one another. This is how all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So as you look over that passage and the things that stood out to you, or any questions that that passage provoked in you, I invite you to take a moment to just reflect on those things. Maybe write some things down, and once you feel inclined to do so, share with those around you uh, at your table 
what stood out to you and why, any questions that you have. If you're watching this on Zoom, feel free to share those in the chat. If you're watching this on YouTube later, let us know in the comments. But for those of you here, to take about five or ten minutes to share with those around you anything that stood out or any questions that you have. All right. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts, your questions, what things stood out to you, why they did, what's confusing. Chair has a question. Chair, yeah. <laughs> Weeks ago, you were talking about when uh, Jesus asked Simon Peter three times, Simon, do you love me? Uh-huh. I was curious um, when Jesus says, like, love one another as I have loved you, is he saying, like, like, which level is he saying? Agape. What, which word of love? Yes. Which Greek word for love? Yeah, he's using the word agape. That's a great question. Yeah. Because there are, there are four different words for, for love in Greek. So he's using agape, that sacrificial love that is embodied by Jesus that God has for us. Um, that's the level that he's calling them to. Yeah, Katie. So he's asking us to have sacrificial love for other people. Correct. Don't you think that's kind of a stretch? Because like, <laughs> you're like you're, I'm just saying like how the the capacity of us to love unconditionally for other people sure, that's yeah. like a high expectation. Yeah. So that's what he's. Okay. Yeah, well, and uh, there's plenty of places in scripture like that where Jesus says things like, "Be be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." Now is that possible or reasonable like to expect no but it's a goal that we can strive for so in in a sense in the spiritual life it's always good to have a goal that's almost like unattainable versus having a goal that's too easy because if we have a goal that's too easy then we're going to settle we're going to get comfortable we're going to do the bare minimum things like that if we have a goal that's almost unattainable or that is unattainable but we're going to keep striving for it even if we fall short which we always will we're still doing better than too, too shallow of a goal. So that's kind of what this command is pointing toward. It's the ideal, it's what we're called to, but can we do it perfectly all the time? No. Matt? Which reminds me, after confession once, the priest was like, God, Jesus expects up here, he accepts anything below that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I don't so if my memory serves me correct, Judas just left the table Mm-hmm. So why then did it take Judas to leave for Jesus to say, now the Son of Man is glorified? What is that supposed to entail? Yeah, so what he's referencing is the fact that now the ball is in motion. You know, the, the gears are in motion for his death to be brought about because Judas has left to initiate it. So now he's saying, now the Son of Man will be glorified. Now everything that I've come to do will come to pass and will bring the Father glory. And that's begun now because Judas has left to go initiate this. And he knows that. He knows full well what's about to happen. He's willingly entering into it. But that's why he's using that language. It's because after all before this, he's using language like, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. But now, once he's here, he says, now the hour of the Son of Man has been fulfilled. He uses a lot of that kind of language during this uh, discourse, this final discourse in the upper room, saying, like, now there's no turning back now. This is what I came to do. Yeah. Yes, Bruce. I saw an incomplete aspect of this command in that it doesn't satisfy what's in it for me. Mm-hmm. I'm loving other people, that's nice. Uh, I'm obeying a command, that's nice. But what's in it for me? And I jumped over to the 15th verse of chapter 14, 
And I think it answers that question. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So there's one aspect. If I keep the commandment to love one another, then I'm loving Jesus. It's a way to love Jesus. But then he goes further and says, and this is where you get something in return, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you always, the spirit of truth. Mm -hmm. So we benefit when we obey the command to love one another, we benefit by getting the Holy Spirit in us in fullness. Yeah. So everybody wins. That's right, yeah. But you speak to an interesting point that there's, there's in the Christian life, there is a posture of I'm doing this because I get something from it or because I'm supposed to, or I'm doing this because it's right and it's good and it's true and it's beautiful, no matter the cost. And there can be a pretty big gap there. And, you know, the Pharisees and the elders, the people who crucified Jesus, they were doing what was right in their eyes. Like they were obeying the law. They were, they, they were trying to adhere to it as best as they possibly could. And they were, do, they were following all of the things and telling people to follow all of the things. But it was just because that was what it was supposed to be like for someone to look holy. Versus if you understand it's about a relationship with God and that the commandments drive us into a relationship of freedom and not into enslavement, then your life looks very different. Your attitude toward God looks very different, less regimental, more relational, um, you know, less rigid and more free. And I think there's a, there's, it speaks to that kind of reality in the Christian life, that a relationship with God cannot be about checking the boxes and just following the rules because they're rules or because someone told us to or because we want to look holy and it's the Christian thing to do. You know, we do those things because we love the other person. Okay, I don't not cheat on my wife because I'm not supposed to. You know, it's like, oh, I'm married. I'm not supposed to cheat on my wife, so I guess I won't. No, I don't cheat on my wife because I love my wife. Because I have a relationship with her and I've committed myself to her and only her. But if I'm just like, well, this is what marriage is. No cheating. And i got to wash the dishes, so I'm going to do that. And I'm just going to be a husband robot. And this is my job now for the rest of my life for all, all of my eternity on earth. You know, like, it can become very emotionless, going through the motions, very hollow. But if it's anchored in relationship, like our faith is supposed to be, it, it is given new life, it's giving purpose. Ian? So, did the Pharisees get caught up with this idea, and I've and I, like, kind of struggled with this and talked to people about it, is this idea of, like, in the human world, if you can't measure something, you can't, you can't observe it, it's hard to, like, mm. conclusion. So did the Pharisees get caught up with, like, trying to apply some human aspect to that which is divine, like, were they trying to measure the holiness, measure the, the sacrifice, and then that's what ultimately led to their demise. Is that kind of the idea? I would, yeah, I would say, yeah, you're, you're kind of speaking to what it, what Phariseeism is kind of like. It's, it's, you have to recognize, like, at, at this time, you couldn't know God necessarily in the sense that we can. God was at a distance. He was always at arm's length. You always had to access him through the priests, through the Pharisees, through the temple, through sacrificial worship, there wasn't an understanding of a personal relationship with God. Even though it was there, in the way that the law is given, in the way that we're told that God loves us and how we're supposed to love each other in the Old Testament, it wasn't explicitly written because just the writers didn't understand that. And we didn't have a personal manifestation of God like Jesus to really make that real. And so it became very much about, okay, if this is how we access God, 
let's make sure we do this very, very regimented and right in the way that God told us. So we're only going to do sacrifices in this way and in this fashion. We're only going to make sure that, like, like there's this story in, um, uh, in 2 Samuel where they're transporting the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and they transport it on a cart, which is not how God told them to transport it. But they're trying to bring it to Jerusalem so they can glorify God. But it's on a cart, and they're supposed to have it on these poles. But because it's on a cart, it gets unsteady. And a guy tries to steady the Ark of the Covenant so it doesn't fall. And because he touches the Ark, and that was forbidden, he drops down dead. And everyone is like, what the heck? Like, what? King David is, like, really mad. Like, God, like, what? Are you mad at us? Like, what happened? And the whole point of it was, like, that this is what, this is what I gave you. And so the Pharisees took that into this like very regimented scrupulosity that if we don't follow exactly what God told us to do in this exact way, then we are not obeying him, we're not connected to him, we don't have any relationship with him. And they lost the heart of the law, which is that it's all about relationship. We obey God because we love him and we trust him. We don't just obey God out of fear because we don't want to fall down dead if we do the wrong thing, you know? Um, and that, so that story kind of illustrates that, if that makes sense. But yeah, we, we can still get like that. And this was true in the Catholic Church, too, like for, for many, uh, for many like centuries. Like if you, uh, you might still find these. They have these old um, penance books. If someone comes in and says a certain number, a certain type of sin in the confessional, he's like, okay, what's their penance supposed to be? And you can go down and you can be like, okay. And they have like a, like almost like a spreadsheet of like, here's all the sins and all the degrees of the sins. Here's all the penances. And it was a real thing. It was like, here's your confession handbook, and here's what you tell people to do for penance, depending on what they say. And so that was a very, like, regimented, pharisaical approach to the mercy that we're supposed to experience in the sacrament of confession. And it, it loses sight of, of why we go to confession, of what we're supposed to experience. It's not like paying the piper, putting, you know, the right amount of penance in for the right amount of sins. It's about rectifying a relationship that's broken. Yeah. yeah just to, I just to cap it off the... I really appreciate you explaining how they looked at it and what happened. Mm -hmm. It really helps me understand that. But and but part of the conclusion I came to just thinking about this was like it's really it seems like it's just an exercise of um, giving up control to God. Mm -hmm. Like if you feel like you can measure and do all these things and there was some formula, then you're complete control, right? Like what if you just gave it all up to God and said, I don't know if I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing, but you'll let me know. Like yeah. that, so is it kind of that's built into this? Yeah, yeah. And if, if we if we're in control of everything, then the one thing we don't need is a savior, because we think I can fix this on my own, right? And that's I think a big problem for a lot of people, you know. And at times in my own life, in my own Christian journey, I've gotten to a point where like, okay, I've got this figured out. Like I know what it's like to follow Jesus. I've got this. And then something will happen or come along that I can't handle or that I can't control. And if I don't get out of that fix it mentality, that like I've got this and recognize like, no, Jesus has got this and he's always had it. And I'm just kind of like the bumbling idiot in love with him who's following him along the way. And sometimes I do it better when I give him control. You know, um, I realize that I'm like, I'm in a car with Jesus. And at times in my life, I'm the psychopath in the passenger seat trying to steer. And he's just like, dude, what are you doing? You know, like and if anyone did that in reality, they'd be like, you're never allowed in this car again. But that's, that's basically what we, we do in life, you know? And so it's, yeah, it's exactly the trusting that he's in control. He's driving the car. And yeah, as the passenger, I have certain things I can do. You know, the passenger is the designated navigator. I can tell where to go. You know, I have, I have something to contribute, you know, but he's ultimately in charge. And only when that is happening, the swerving ceases and we get to where we need to go. Yes? Too much to discuss this glorified finger 
Yes. Could you explain verse 33? Yes. Okay. So this kind of glorified, glory, glorified, glory in him and himself, all of this. Okay. So the Gospel of John is in two parts. The first half of John is called the Book of Signs. And there's all these, there's seven signs that Jesus performs. And these signs are meant to show that he is something more than a natural man. And so all of these signs have supernatural elements to them, supernatural healings, raising Lazarus from the dead, turning the water into wine, things like that. And in all of those, he says, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, or my hour, my hour has almost arrived. And then once he enters into Jerusalem and he's at the Last Supper, we enter in, in chapter 13, we enter the second half of John, which is called the Book of Glory. And so you'll see that word glory show up a lot. So if you think about like in, a, in an earthly sense, if you're thinking about like an earthly king, you know, what gives the king glory? It's that he is uh, showing his dominance, his power, his majesty, um, you know, all of these different things that show the accolades of his kingdom or his ability to fight or, or wage war or have victory over his enemy. And so when we speak of giving glory to God, we're speaking of things that we can do or say to speak to the majesty of God. No, the, if you know this quote, fill it in. St. Irenaeus, he once said, the glory of God is, anyone know? No, the glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is man fully alive. So a human being living fully alive brings God glory because it shows that the person who created man is being living their life at their highest possible potential. And that gives God glory. That gives God glory. And yeah, a lot of people in that position can choose to use that as a means to give themselves glory. But when we're rightly ordered in our life toward God, and we recognize everything we has, have comes from him, and everything that we have, and all the fruitfulness of what we have, should then go back to him. We're giving him glory. We're always pointing it back to him. And so the whole message of Jesus' life, the whole purpose of his life, was to fulfill the mission that he was given so that God could be glorified, to show that he was a man who was fully alive in God, fully alive in who he was created to be. Okay, think about this. Like, oh my gosh, my mind is thinking about a thousand different things. Okay, think about a rock, okay? A rock is never not a rock, right? Like, a rock can't decide tomorrow, you know, like, you know, tomorrow I want to be like a sponge, you know, or I want to be like a towel, you know? Like, no, a rock is always a rock. So a rock is always glorifying God because it's always doing what it was created to, to do. It's always being what it was created to be. The only creation, the only thing on this planet that has a choice in that area is us. We can choose to not be who we were created to be. And so because of that, we have a diminished cap capacity and capability because of sin to glorify God, because of the reality of sin. Rocks glorify God by being rocks. Deer glorify God by being deer. You know, like the color purple glorifies God by being the color purple. Like that, all of that happens no matter what, all of the time, cannot be different. But we can choose to act differently than the people we were created to be. And when we act as the people we were created to be, we glorify God, we bring him glory. Um, there's a story about a rabbi, I think, oh my gosh, I think it's Rabbi Zusha, I think was his name. And there's a story that he, he, um, he, he comes to his disciples and, and he's, it's clear he's just been sobbing uncontrollably. Like, he's just been crying a lot. And they're like, Rabbi, what, what happened? And he says, I've just found out the question that God is going to ask me when I die. And they're like, well, that's great. That's a good thing to do. Like, how bad can it be? You're a rabbi. Like, God's not, is God really going to judge you that harshly? And he says, well, the question that I, that I discovered is that at the end of my life, God is not going to ask me, why weren't you like Moses and, you know, 
following the law like Moses did and leading the people? Why weren't you like Joshua, leading people into the promised land? He's going to ask me, why weren't you Zusha? Why weren't you who I created you to be? And I've shared this before, this quote from Blessed Carlo Acutis, that all of us are born originals, but most of us die photocopies. This reality that we're all trying to be something that we're not. Social media is very good at helping us with this idea. We're all trying to put forth this, this mask or this facade, like everything's okay, or my life is great, or you know, I'm hustling in all these different ways, I'm doing what everyone else is doing, but we lack the ability to be intentional, to be vulnerable, to be authentic. But when we do that, and when we lean into the people that God really created us to be, we bring God glory. And so all of that to say, Jesus' whole life was completely authentically pointing to God and giving him glory, just like a rock always brings glory to God because it cannot be anything other than what it was created to be, a rock. Jesus always brought God glory because he never, even for one second, ceased to be the person that God created him to be. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man, manifests, the full revelation of God here on earth incarnate. And so, when he says this, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God has glorified him. He's saying that I am this person, the Son of Man. This was a figure from the Old Testament. I am this prophetic figure who has come to fulfill this mission that has been long in plan from the very beginning, from when sin entered the world. And because of that, I will glorify God because I'm coming to do what I was created to do. This uh, Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7. Uh, it's a prophecy that Daniel has in one of his visions uh, in verses 13 and 14. It says, I saw coming with the clouds of heaven one like a Son of Man when he reached the Ancient of Days, that's the phrase for God, and was presented before him, he received dominion, splendor, and kingship. All synonyms for a word maybe like glory. All nations, peoples, and tongues will serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. His kingship, one that shall not be destroyed. And so this prophecy of the Son of Man was one of these kind of messianic expectations that a Messiah coming would be like the Son of Man, this figure in the Old Testament, an apocalyptic figure that would come on clouds with power to glorify God and unite all of the nations. Now, we call Jesus the Christ. We call him the Son of God. The thing that Jesus called himself more than anything else in all of the Gospels, by far, was the Son of Man. That's always the title he uses to refer to himself. Almost always. It's um, 90% of the time. And so he's talking about that specific mission, to come and glorify God by uniting all of the tribes, all of the nations of the world, and to give God dominion, glory, and kingship. So that's the first part of, of the verse. And then in verse 32, if God is glorified in him, so meaning if God is glorified by Jesus being fully who he's created to be, God will also glorify Jesus in Jesus' self. Meaning that not only will God receive glory, but Jesus will also receive glory for him being who he was fully created to be. And God will glorify him at once, immediately. Meaning today, that moment. And the Last Supper at least these discourses, we believe, happened after sundown, and that was the start of a new day in the Jewish calendar. And the next day is what we know as Good Friday. So for them, in the Hebrew day, would have been the same day. So at once, meaning like today, within the next 24 hours, like this will come to fruition. And it seems a very antithetical way to think of glory, of Jesus being nailed to a cross. But that was the mission he came to do, to reconcile us with God. And so all of that clears up some of the weird language that's there. But all of that is to show that when we live into our purpose, into who God created us to be as unique, individual, unrepeatable beings, 
we bring him glory. When we exercise the unique combination of gifts that only we've been given, we give him glory. Yes? Is there an aspect of being glorified that requires that there be an audience for it? Can you get glorified in the vacuum, or do you have to get glorified in front of all the angels in heaven? And is there anything that I can do for God other than do something that glorifies him? Is there anything I can add to God, please God with, whatever, for glorifying him in some way, the main deal that he wants? Hmm. These are both a very complicated philosophical question. So simply, uh, the first one, does there need to be an audience in order for God to receive glory? Not necessarily because God in himself is an audience. He is three persons, God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So he's always being glorified, even if it is the Father being glorified in the presence of the Son and the Spirit, and, you know, so forth. So, um, but because God, because God is love, love creates, it overflows, it outpours. It wants more abundance. It naturally leads to more abundance. A married couple, in their love, their love comes together, they create more life. It's more abundance. And so it doesn't necessitate an audience, but it naturally leads to the creation of more, more people to witness that glory, more you know, aspects of that glorification, if that makes any sense. That's kind of where my mind is leading at the moment. But God is complete in himself. He does not need us. So he does not need an audience in order for him to be glorified. He is completely glorified in himself, completely complete by himself. Um, so that's the first question. The second question, is there anything that I can do um, to offer God? Can you, can you re-clarify how you phrase that? Is there anything I can do for God other than do something that glorifies him? Is there anything else I can do for God other than something that glorifies him? If you do anything for God that is authentically done in service to him out of love, then all of that brings him glory naturally. So it, it would be, it would be um, paradoxical for you to do something that God wouldn't want you to do or not for God in some capacity that wouldn't bring him glory. Because ultimately anything that we do that is good, true, beautiful, that has love or any sense of belonging in it, God is there. God is involved in that. And those facets of it that are true, good, beautiful, and loving glorify God, whether we realize it or not. Um, and so simply by being who we were created to be, we do that. And all the facets of life and all the ways we use our gifts and all the ways that we are stewards of our time, talent, and treasure, we do that. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yes? This kind of formally just when you asked this question, so sorry to say that. No, it's okay. Um, when, you said, when you said audience, I immediately went to the idea of like, does everything that meet the requirements, like of love, kind of like the way you just named all those things, does it mean it has to be like sacrificial? Like, does is love always technically sacrificial when giving glory to God, or are there different types of ways of expressing love that God accepts to glorify Him? Um, I think all love will glorify God naturally, even if it's not our intention to do so. Um, is all love sacrificial? Not in the definition of the word love, like in the Greek words of love used in, in, in the Bible. Um, some love is self-serving, like eros, romantic love. It is seeking desires to be fulfilled. Now, when eros is perfectly ordered to God, 
our desires are perfectly in line with what God would desire for us. So in that sense, they would glorify God. But um, if you're talking about sacrificial love, agape, the love that's being used here, yes, it would always be sacrificial in some capacity. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas says, to love is to will the good of the other. So that's always thinking outside of yourself. So naturally, that form of love, by his definition, is always sacrifice, sacrificial because you're setting aside your own needs, desires, wants for the will of the for the good of the other, to will the good of the other. And just to, sorry to go off that real quick. So like sacrificial, I just feel like it has this like more negative context. Of course, it's in a more positive context. Yeah. It's talking about religion, faith, loving people, but like I guess it's like kind of paradoxical thing. But if it's like if you're doing it for the purpose of good, mm -hmm. so it's like a good sacrifice. Yeah, I mean, think about two people who are married. They make sacrifices. You know, like, so for instance, <laughs> okay, yeah, I'll use this example. So when I got married to my wife and I said, I'm going to commit myself to you, I sacrificed a potential relationship with potentially three billion other women on the planet. Not that they were all looking, but, you know, no, 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 that is a much smaller number, if any. So, but that, in a sense, is a sacrifice, right? I'm saying no to this to say yes to something else. So even if it is a good yes, and there isn't some kind of what we might constitute as a negative or like an element of fasting or like being like doing without that we see as negative. I wasn't thinking about that when I made my wedding vows. So I was thinking about saying yes to my wife. I wasn't thinking about saying no to three billion other women, you know. Um, so it wasn't negative to me, but it involved sacrificing that whether I realized it, you know, consciously or not. Does that make sense? No, that definitely does. Cool. Yes, Matt. Interesting. At the retreat I was at this weekend, the priest that was in charge told us that all our desires he believes, none of them are ever evil, but it's how we order them, how we prioritize those desires. So mm. I guess ordering them sacrificially, I guess, so it's like we may desire something, but like you said, it's disordered in the yeah. way that we prioritize things. Yeah. So, there is. Like desire is not never evil, he said. It's like desire is good. Always intentionally yeah. intended to be good. The way in which we fulfill that desire can be evil. Correct. Yeah. So in every sin, there is something true, good, and beautiful that has been distorted. So even if you go back to Genesis 3, it says those things. It says that the fruit on the tree was pleasing to the eyes, beautiful, good for food, good, and was desirable for gaining wisdom or truth. So it was true, good, and beautiful, but it was a distortion of the true, good, and beautiful that God offered them because they were disobeying God by consuming that fruit. So the same thing is true in every sin. And if there wasn't something true, good, or beautiful in there, some distorted way, we would never do it because we wouldn't desire it. It wouldn't be appealing to us. So the important thing is we're thinking about like sins or things that mistakes we've made, obstacles we have in the spiritual life. It's it's really daunting to think about like okay, how do I not do this anymore? Versus thinking about what is the good thing that I'm desiring that I'm going to this not good thing to fulfill, and then how do I find a way to get this good thing and honor it? in a way that is not distorted. That's a much more whole and healing and um, integrated form of the spiritual life when it comes to overcoming sin. So yeah, exactly. Other questions, thoughts, Greg? First off, if your wife is listening tonight, I hope she doesn't take any of your comments out of context. <laughs> no, no, she's heard me say many of these things before, and I don't think she is, so. Secondly, in reading this gospel and talk about the glory in the beginning, when we get to the end, and he says, I feel like there's there's an additional comment that could have been made to kind of bring it full circle again, mm -hmm. back to the glory part. 
So I mean, thinking like, what if it went like, this is how all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And if you have love for one another, I too will be glorified, the Son of Man will be glorified through mm. efforts or something like that. To sure. Show them that, to, to show them there's more than a purpose just to love one another, that there's glory in that. Yeah. What do you think about that? Um, I would agree, and I would say that Jesus does that later on. Um, so remember, this is the beginning of a very long discourse. So in John, I think this is in John 17, um, this is the priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. Beautiful prayer. If you've never just read John 17, this is just Jesus basically talking to the Father. And John uses it as a literary device to basically explain for the reader, this is everything Jesus came to do. It's like an internal monologue that he writes out. And Jesus says, he raises his hands to heaven, Father, the hour has come. Give glory to your Son so that your Son may glorify you, just as you gave him authority over all people, so that he may have eternal life, or he may give eternal life to all you gave him. Now this is eternal life, that they should know you, the only true God, and the one whom you sent, Jesus Christ. I glorified you on earth. Uh, the part I'm thinking of is not in here, but it's somewhere in there, that language that you use. And then later on, um, in, where is this? John, or is it First John? I just had this. First John 2. Yes. First John 2, 2, chapter 7. Beloved, I am writing to you a new commandment, not a new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And yet I do write a new commandment to you, which holds true in him and among you. For the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light yet hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother remains in the light, and there is light in him to cause a fall. Whoever hates his brother is in darkness. He walks in darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And he goes on, later on, in that next letter of John, that this is not a new command, but one that they had from the beginning. This love that we walk according to his commandments, this is the commandment, as you've heard, from the beginning in which you walk where is this part about glory? I'm sorry. I totally thought it was here. But yes, Jesus says that again. I totally had it earmarked, and I thought it was in that passage I just read. So, to your point, yes, it should have that, and it does later. Anyway, sorry about that. Look. So, John 17, verse 22 says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. There it is. Yep. And it continues. Yeah, so, yes, exactly. And then it goes back to talking about how that love was manifested and the love that God and Jesus had for one another before the foundation of the world. So it does come full circle, but Jesus is starting this whole long discourse of four chapters, basically. So he's just getting going here. This is how he's choosing to begin. So that's an important thing when we're listening to this passage to recognize, like, this is Jesus' parting words. He's just told them, like, I'm going to die. Someone is going to betray me. This is the last time I want to teach you. This is the last thing I have for you. This is how he's starting it, is with this passage. So it's important, like, the gravity of that. Because we hear this all the time, like, love one another as I have loved you. And we're like, oh, yeah, that sounds very Jesus-y. But, like, to recognize this to Jesus is, like, the climax of his ministry. And through doing that, we glorify God. We bring him glory. That's, that holds more weight, I think, when we see it in that context. Bruce? Does this agape love that we're commanded to do 
require an action as opposed to, oh, I love you, an emotion or a thought? Does it require an action? I loan you some money, I scratch your back, whatever it is. Mm. Does it imply that as opposed to just some nefarious emotional zone? I would say in the in the, the definition of love in a theological sense, love is always active. That the emotion of love is never what is, is talked about when we talk about the word love. So anytime Jesus uses that word love, he's always using it to point toward the action of his sacrifice on the cross or the action of God's love for us manifests in different events through history. So I think it's an important distinction because we, I think, get confused when we see, you know, love, love your neighbors yourself, love everybody. We think of the emotional side of love, and that is very hard for us. And so in that sense, you may have heard the phrase, like, as Christians, we're called to love everyone, but we don't have to like everybody. You know, so it's, it's not about the emotional part of it. It's about recognizing my role is always to will the good of the other, to put my needs second to the needs of the other that God has placed in front of me. And that always is some kind of action. And that, might, that action might be simply withholding saying something that might be hurtful withholding doing something that might be destructive or might be negative. It doesn't necessitate a specific action that I could give you a list of these are the things you do and this is what it means to love somebody when they come before you. I think it depends on who God brings before you and how the Holy Spirit speaks to you in that moment. But I would say that love is always a choice. It's always an action and it's always manifested in our actions. Um, I can say I love you to my wife every day, but if I don't, you know, celebrate her birthday, bring her flowers, don't do anything for her, don't cook any meals, don't take care of our children, you know, like the, the words are going to lose meaning pretty quickly. So if I never said I love you to my wife, but I always showed it, she would have much more confidence in the fact that I loved her, even if I never verbalized it. The perfection in the relationship is that both happen, but that the words only have meaning because of the actions that give them meaning. Yes. Uh, I have a question about Judas. So, uh, after Judas is, or after Jesus is betrayed, uh, is there anywhere in the Bible where Jesus is like, he feels like anger towards Judas or anything like that? Like, where he feels anger towards Judas? Or where he feels just like betrayed or feels like. I mean, he definitely speaks to the fact that, like, he says one of you is going to betray me. So he says, like, he knows that. So um, he never condemns him or anything? Like, no. No, he, he says, you know, are you going to, uh, uh, Judas, are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane? Um, but he, he even says, like, go do what you must. Like, if you've made your choice, like, go do this. Yeah, but he also said that it'd be better for that man if he had not been born. He does, yeah, but that's not speaking words of condemnation necessarily. Jesus saying, like, I am condemning this person to hell. But he does say that, yeah. But that is the, he's speaking to the natural consequences of sinful actions in that point. He's not speaking extra condemnation upon him in anger. Yeah. So he never, like, he never had to forgive Judas in a sense because he never condemned him in the first place? Um, I think he forgave Judas uh, because he, well, okay. Roll that one back. Hold on. Um, forgiveness is always offered, but it is only ever. Um, is only ever received once it is asked for. So, would Jesus have forgiven Judas? Yes. Did that event happen? Probably not, because Judas never sought it from Jesus. 
Um, he did show an act of repentance or rather regret. He returned the money, he threw it at the feet of the, the Pharisees and the elders, and then um, they used it to go buy the potter's field, which had a prophecy about it, and then um, Judas went and hung himself in grief and remorse. That's in Scripture. Um, but he never goes to reconcile. So, um, like, the, the, the path of betrayal is the same in the beginning for both Peter and Judas. They both turn away from Jesus. They both turn away from him and do not acknowledge their relationship with him as disciple, and it leads to an act of betrayal. The difference is Peter comes back and repents and is reconciled. Judas is not. So would he have been forgiven if he sought forgiveness? Yes. Is the heart of Jesus, the heart of the Father, always seeking to give us forgiveness? Yes. Was it ever received and manifest in Judas's life? Probably not from the evidence we have from Scripture. I would say no, but we don't know. Yes? It kind of doesn't make sense to me because if you say that you don't need to forgive someone if they're not asking for it, I mean, there's been probably things that happen in people's lives where, you know, you've been angry and you're maybe not even with those people anymore, but you have probably some obligation to forgive what they did. Because yeah, no, I'm talking about the forgiveness of God when it comes to God forgiving our sins. So, like, God God is always willing and ready to forgive our sins, but the in order for us to receive that forgiveness, we need to repent of those sins and come and be reconciled to him. So, yes, in the same sense, God is always willing to forgive, just like we should always be willing to forgive, even if that person ever comes back to us. But because God gave us free will, he's not going to force us, you know. So, in, in the Catholic Tradition, the, uh, the only unforgivable sin is the sin you do not ask forgiveness for. God will forgive any sin that you ask forgiveness for, but we are required to ask, to use our free will to reconcile to him. We can't just rely on the fact that he's going to forgive us. I wasn't talking about God. I was just talking about us. Yes, yeah, but I wanted to clarify, because before I was talking about God, but I didn't want that to be conflated with us. Yeah. Other thoughts, Michelle? So I underlined this word children again. Mm -hmm. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago yeah. when Jesus is like fixing breakfast for everyone, mm -hmm. right? And, and um, at the time you talked about him saying it sort of like, hey kids, did you catch anything today? Yes. Right? But this reference is more like, like father, my children. Yes. And it's a different word that's used here. Yeah, so in that in that account, it was like padion or something like that, which means like kiddo or like little kid. Um, this means like my little children. And this word technia or technon, this was the word that became um, associated with the Christian believers. When like the leaders would address the community, they would call them children and they would call the leaders fathers. You know, and that's where we still have them called priest fathers. Um, and so that's the word that ends up being used in the Christian community. But they're translated similarly in English. Yeah. Yeah, Jerry. What was the word you said was used for like kiddos and stuff? It was, let me, I'll just turn to it so I get it right. I'm not going to be guessing. Paidia, P-A-I-D-I-A. But in this, it is technia, T-E-C-H-N-I-A. T-E-C-H-N-I-A. And that's the only place in the Gospels that technia is, is used, the little children. Well, we just have a few minutes left, and I want to I want to zero in here on these kind of last couple verses. 
where Jesus says, I give you a new commandment. So first of all, for Jesus to say that, if we know the Bible, who in the history of the Bible is the only other person who's given commandments? God. Okay, so it's a pretty spicy thing to say, right? I'm giving you a new commandment. That's basically Jesus saying, if you haven't figured it out yet, I am God. I have the power and the authority to do this. And yet what he gives them is not a new commandment, is it? He says, love one another. You can find that in Leviticus chapter 19. And we think Leviticus maybe not the most loving book ever if you've ever read it. But Leviticus 19, uh, verse 18, take no revenge and cherish no grudge against your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So this was an existing command. Okay? This wasn't anything new. What was new about it is the next part. As I have loved you, so you also should love one another. There was no previous example to draw upon of God being manifest in such a human way where we could know, okay, this is now what we are to emulate. This is how we are to love. In the Catechism, paragraphs 457 and 460 talk about the reasons for the incarnation, and there's four. But one of them is to reveal the Father's love to us, to show us how much God loves us. And one of the other ones is to show us how to live or to be an example of holiness to us. So now we have a model. We know what to do. So even though this was in the law, and it was the heart of the law before, the heart of the law was always love, it became regimented, as we were talking about before. And so even though it's not a new commandment in terms of words, it's new because Jesus makes it new. And the fact that he is now revealing to us what it means to love. And then he says this, this is how all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. Would people know that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ in the way that you love one another? Dorothy Day once said, I only love God as much as the person I love the least. I only love God as much as the person I love the least. And we can get, especially in today's day and age, with so much division, so many issues, so many things going on, it's very easy to kind of pick out a group or a person the them of our lives or of our society, and then paint them in this very negative aspect and not treat them in a way that is loving, not speak about them or speak to them in a way that is loving. But as Christians, we have to recognize we are walking symbols of Catholicism, of Christianity, walking symbols of scripture, walking symbols of the church. And people should be able to look at us and say, there's something different about them because of the way that they love each other. You know, if people walk to win around and they looked at the Bible, and they were like, this was the verse they zeroed in on. Okay, the church that is the true church, we will know because of the way they love each other. Would they arrive at a Catholic church if they were looking? Hopefully, but I don't know. And the onus of that is on us. We make up the body of Christ and what we do out in the world and how we love one another. And so I think the challenge for you and I, brothers and sisters, this week is to really ask ourselves that question. Do I glorify God in the way I love other people? Or do I lack love to others? And do I lack love to such a degree that I am detracting from from God? Or am I giving glory to something else, to the enemy? Or am I glorifying myself and just drawing people closer to me or wanting attention for myself? Is everything that I'm doing oriented toward loving one another to glorify God? And the second thing, going back to, am I leaning into really understanding the purpose, the person that God created me to be. And I glorify God in that. Remember, St. Irenaeus, the glory of God is man fully alive, a human being fully alive. 
So brothers and sisters, what is inhibiting you from being fully alive, from exercising your gifts and talents for the glory of God in whatever way he's calling you to be, to do? Not so you can be like anyone else, not so you can be the next celebrity influencer, so you can surpass the person next to you or surpass the person who's up for that promotion at work, whatever it is, but so you can be the best possible version of the person God created you to be because nobody else can do that. Because at the end of your life, they're not going to ask you how you compared to person X or person Y. God is going to ask me, why weren't you Matt Semenik? Why weren't you? What prevented you? And as another saint once said, at the dawn of our life, the dusk of our life, the end of our life, whatever he said, you St. John on the cross, we will be judged on how we loved. We'll be judged on how we loved. So how do you love this week? How are you living fully alive in the person God created you to be? And I pray that as we hear this proclaimed this Sunday, that that would challenge us again in a new way as new words and things stand out. But that would be our prayer this week. And we carry that to every interaction we have, especially those difficult ones, especially the ones, um, the people that rub us the wrong way. And maybe that happened yesterday. Maybe you had a family gathering and family can push our buttons. Or maybe there's reconciliation and forgiveness that needs to happen. But whatever that is in the coming week, I pray that it will, it will manifest beauty and grace in your life and that you will really be considering, praying, leaning into who did God create me to be and who am I being called to love more authentically, more sacrificially. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this time and this community to dive into your word. All of the questions and reflections that were provoked in this reading, and there's so much more that your scripture is so deep and has so many layers, and we just pray, God, that we would continue to read, to dive in, to get to know you in the word, for you are the word made flesh. We hear your voice in scripture, and we pray that we will hear your voice in our prayer, and then through the voices of those around us throughout our week. We pray that you will lead us to where you are calling us to go and who you are calling us to be and to lead always with love. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. 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 The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We will see you.